0: Listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. If someone holds the door. I appreciate that. And that's true. But the idea of appreciation is something that's appreciating is increasing in value. Right, whereas something that's depreciating is going down in value. Like right now, as you sit here, your car is depreciating in value. <laughs> By the time this service is over, you're gonna have lost $35 because you bought a new car and it's depreciating. But your home, if you have one, is appreciating, let's hope. And I think that we live with an increasing value, all the more valuing and loving, and fully surrendering to the Lord Jesus. Let's appreciate him. Let's incre- let him increase in value in your life. I'm gonna start this morning with verse one of the psalm, or the, excuse me, the, the hymn I read last week. <clears throat> it goes like this. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns, all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for me, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious day you've given. God, my second favorite thing to do today is going to be to run out in that sunshine. Lord, my first favorite thing to do today is to be in your presence to lift my hands, to hail you as my matchless king. God, to to open my heart to your word. God, that your word might not be lost to me, but it might be treasured by me. That it might be hidden in my heart that I wouldn't sin against you. That God, your word would have such a a formative, shaping, even correcting role in my life. God, that my life, that my, my life Birth of the dirt, and yet with the breath of God in my lungs, God, that I might take on and I might have the very image of Christ formed and shaped in me. So do that today, Lord, won't you? We know this is a work of grace. We can't form the image of Christ in ourselves. Lord, we need your hands upon us as the potter puts his hands upon the clay. Lord, we need your spirit breathed afresh within us. God, that you would counsel and convict and shape and empower, that you would unlock joy and peace and faithfulness. That God, we would be your people and you, you Lord, would be our God. We pray this in your precious name. Together we said, amen. I want to to talk today, uh, preach to you from... Um, John 15, he, some of you know John 15, it's a very famous um, portion of the scripture, it's kind of the farewell discourse of Jesus, Jesus makes a statement earlier in the book of John where he's going to go and he's, he's on his way to the cross and he's going to lay down his life for us and his blood will be our forgiveness, his resurrection will be our, our power and our new life and so there's these final discourses and he, and he gives one of the great I am statements of the Bible, there's several And he says, I am the vine. I am the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All that. But I want to start with something we often don't realize. Because if you were a first century Jew, you would understand that Jesus, when he starts talking about the vine metaphor, he's referencing an ancient poem, an ancient song from the Old Testament. For it was well known by them that the vineyard reference was God speaking of his people. That the vineyard of God was God's people. And so let me take you back in time, probably about 800 years if you were a first century Jew. It's farther than that because this is not the first century. And let me read to you from Isaiah five. It's the song about the Lord's vineyard. And it goes like this. Now I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land and cleared the stones and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a winepress in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Now you, people of Jerusalem and Judea, you judge between me and my vineyard, For what more could I have done for my vineyard than what I have already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did the vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and and they will be destroyed. I will break down the walls and the animals will come and they will trample upon it. I will make a wild place where the vines were not pruned and where the ground is not hoed and a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain upon it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord's Heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice. But instead, he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness. But instead, he heard cries of violence. I think if... If you were a person sitting, listening to Jesus speak to you about the vineyard, and you knew this song, this song, which was meant to be this precious praise to the one that he loves, God loving his garden and his people, and his people loving God, for that's the great commandment, right, to love the Lord your God with all your might, We don't love him first. He loves us first. We love him back. And there's supposed to be this great, beautiful picture of the vineyard of God. And God does all that he has and provides all that it needs. And instead of providing sweet grapes, God's people return to him bitter, bitter grapes. And because of that, a judgment falls on the people. And in fact, the very people living in that first century, living to Jesus' words, were living under that judgment. That the word of the Lord had gone forth and God had called his people to himself and brought great deliverance, brought great victory, had promised to always be present among them. That every place they set their foot, God would give them victory, and that God would be glorified in them and they would be delighted in him. It was a good plan. And yet the people's response to God's good plan and merciful and abundant provision was bitter grapes. And so the judgment of the Lord came upon them. And it's important for us to understand that the judgment of the Lord, the discipline of God, is like a good father disciplining his children, that he disciplines those he loves. And God's discipline in their life and in your life and my life, that God's discipline... Is always meant to be redemptive so that we would change. So that we would turn to him. And instead of giving him rebellion and bitterness, give him our hearts. Give him obedience. Give him our sweet joy. And it's helpful for us to think for a moment about the expectations of God. Because it speaks of God's expectations on us. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done, in verse four? When I expected sweet grapes, why did the vineyard give me bitter grapes? Uh, This is interesting. This is good. This is good for us. Just relax a minute. You have to embrace this. The Lord expects sweet grapes from you, not bitter grapes. I mean, when we deal with our children, do we expect bitterness from them or do we expect a sweet hug and a kiss and a yes, mom, and a yes, dad? There is an expectation on God's people that we would be sweet to him. And he puts a finer point to it in verse 7. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. When he talks about a crop of justice, he's really, he's speaking of 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 a group, of a society, of a community of people that stands for that which is right. And that opposes that which is evil. He's not so much talking about the individual heart of justice, although certainly that would be included. But God is saying, why do you as a people allow such injustice amongst your ranks? Why do you treat people, and why do you allow a corporate fleecing of the poor? What Corey read to us was so powerful from Isaiah because it's one of the major themes, that you fast, you act religious, You do your Sunday thing, and yet in your hearts, you oppress, and you take advantage of the poor and the disadvantaged. God says, my presence is there among you so that you would lift people up, not tear people down. And yet the sin that so deeply embeds itself in our hearts only seeks to promote ourselves, even at the expense of others. And I'm talking if it's in a marriage or in a family or in like a a region or society or a church. Or if we're talking about national and global sociological injustices. Because this can be interpersonal and it can be systemic. By systemic, I mean there are systems in place in this world where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And I don't, not one person necessarily dreamed up the fact that we're going to elevate the rich and we're going to continue to crush the poor. Maybe some people think like that. But it's the natural tendency of a group of people who are not surrendered to God, living in his vineyard, bringing sweet grapes to him, that we allow systems to evolve and exist that oppress the poor and that advantage ourselves. This is, this is not a secret And so there's a corporate sense of expectation from God of justice, not oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. This one, Isaiah and many of the prophets, they use parallelism. In some ways, they're saying the same thing twice so that we might hear it in a fresh way. But I believe that first half of that couplet speaks of a corporate responsibility for justice. And I believe the second half of this couplet, which is similar of the same like, but it's also emphasizing a personal purity, a righteousness in your heart, a righteousness in the way you conduct your life. And here in the vineyard of God's people, God has expectations that we grow under his great grace, under his beautiful mercy, under his abundant provision, that we grow into sweet grapes. And that we stand against oppression, and unholiness, sin. So with that as our backdrop, let's read John 15. John 15, chapter 1. Here we go, Jesus speaking, it's all in red. Look at that, it's all in red. I am the true vine, he said. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So that it might be even more fruitful. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My commandment is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do as I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I called you friends, for everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this command, this is my command, to love one another. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, there seemed to be a fair amount of repetition. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. I remain in my Father, my Father in me, and the love of my... There's, so he's cycling through these issues of remaining or abiding. I prefer the word abide. I think the ESV and some of the older translations say abide. There's this idea of remaining, just staying there. You could also use the word Dwell. I think the imagery of some of the ancient language is pitch your tent, right? Camp out right there. Camp out in Christ. We should start a ministry, camping in Christ. Everyone's involved and you can take a hot shower and sleep in your own bed. You do it wherever you want, but remain or abide, stay in that place. Let me bullet point just a couple things because it was repetitious and it did cycle through but I wanna bring some spotlight, some focus to abiding in the vine. First one is this. Abiding in the vine produces transformed lives. I mean, it seems very obvious, but maybe I should say it this way. Without abiding in the vine, your life will not be transformed into the image of Christ. Because Jesus says, I am the vine, and off of this vine come many branches. We're thinking this is a vineyard now, right? We're not talking about Tarzan in the jungle. We're talking about a vineyard vine. And so the vine is the thick part that has the root, and and so off this vine comes all the branches, and on the branches hangs the fruit. And Jesus is saying, look, if you're not actually attached to the vine, the gardener, God the gardener, is going to just remove you. And he's saying, so much like this, you can pose and you can pretend, but God knows you can't fool him. You can go through the motions of following Jesus or spirituality. You can put on all the trimmings of looking like you're a branch and even kind of scotch taped to the vine. But unless you're truly connected to Christ, the life of the vine, the life of God, is not getting to you. It is not running into your life, and that's why there's no fruit on the vine. And I, I warn you against posing, posers, pretenders. Jesus also called them hypocrites. People that are clean on the outside, he call like a, a, a dirty glass or a dirty mug. It's clean on the outside, but once you look inside, it's kind of old and disgusting, right? Use an example of of people like this who are like a tomb, whitewashed tombs on the outside. It's all beautiful and painted nicely, but if you go inside, it's just dead, rotting flesh and bones. And the idea of abiding in Christ is that you must be legitimately connected Some people question if they're legitimately connected to Jesus. But the Bible makes it very, very clear that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you're connected. Right? You may be hanging on by a thread. Your faith might be small. It might be just like the little tiny branches on there. But Jesus assured us that if we have the faith of the smallest, then he used mustard seed. Now we're changing metaphors and parables a little bit. He said, just a little bit of faith. Trust me, we'll move every mountain. Hey, just a little bit of faith, a little bit of trust. You take one little step. You take a baby step towards God. It says, and God will not forsake you or leave you. But the life of God will flood into you. You start with baby steps, and before you know it, you'll be doing an all-out gallop. God help us. Some of you will be sprinting in Christ. But it starts with authenticity and a genuine Connection with God. Second thing is this. Abiding in the vine is the way of power and glory. I love that title when I typed it. Abiding in the vine is the way of power and glory. And your power and God's glory. I mean, twice in that part I read to you, says that whatever you ask in his name, God will do it. Listen to me. God desires to be fruitful in your life. And I think sometimes in our own selfish perspectives, we think, well, whatever I ask for myself, God will give to myself. That is not what Jesus is saying. The context of this is fruitfulness in the life of God. The vineyard of God's people would produce fruit, which means justice and righteousness. So whatever you ask in his name, God desires to work justice in you and through you. God desires to work righteousness in your heart of hearts. That sin would be crucified and obliterated on the cross. That you would be a testimony, a holy, righteous, not perfect, but spirit-filled, God-filled, God-connected testimony in our lives to the world around us. That God's got himself a vineyard. And there's some sweet fruit on the vines. What are you asking for right now? I mean... When he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will give you, I, I just think, myself, Lord, what am I asking for? Let me tell you, it's not wrong to ask God for provision or protection or direction, things that we personally need. As a matter of fact, fathers love it when their kids ask for help. I don't know, you're probably gonna be really, really shocked at this, but my kids are all kind of grown. I know, I know. I adopted three children when my wife and I were nine. (laughs) And they've grown up so beautifully. But as a father, they don't necessarily need me for as much as they once did. I mean, there was a time when none of my children spoke English. They needed me. Couldn't walk. Anyways, so as time and, you know, all that went on. They don't need me so much. One of my daughters is married and moved away. But you know what? Every once in a while, she'll send me a text, and she'll need me. And you know what? I don't say like, oh, that silly girl. She's got her own husband. Deal with that. That ridiculous child. When is she ever going to walk on her own and live her own life? I don't think that. Maybe you do, but if you do, come talk to me, because I need to adjust some things. in you. When my daughter texts me and says, hey, Dad, could you help me out? I am like, yes. Oh, oh, how I long to still be important to your life. I know you don't need me. You married this other guy. You got another favorite guy in your life. But, but I want to be wanted. I want to be needed in your life, my dear sweet child. And us dads, as our kids get older, we walk this tightrope. Because I don't know about you, but I have this thing where I kind of want to make all their decisions for them, right? Right, I mean... If that was okay, I would still do that. But it's not okay. And so as a good and hopefully wise father, I let my children live their lives and make decisions and learn how to make decisions that not only benefit them and honor the Lord, but I trust, honor their mother and I. I want that for them. But I I love it when they need me. Jesus, whatever you ask, According to the mission. The mission of justice, the mission of righteousness, the mission of God's people to be a testimony on the earth that there's a better way to live, that there's a God in heaven who formed you and who loves you, as a matter of fact, who redeemed you, if only you would come and put your trust in Him. This is the mission. And if there is anything that we might ask God according to that mission, I, says, I will give it to you. I might even put an extra 20 in there just so you can get an ice cream when the mission's done. I think, the Lord delights in that. I love it when my kids say, like, Dad, could I borrow $50 and I'll give them 70 just because I want to be a part of their success and their joy. God deals the same way with you, even better. I know another shocker. God's a better parent than I am. I've only glimpsed a little bit of his goodness as a father. And I try, to, I try to imitate it. Because when the kids get on with it, according to the mission, I'm not talking about my own children now, I'm talking about justice, and I'm talking about righteousness. The God is glorified in us. Is God glorified in you? Let me ask you that. Maybe when you when you talk about, think of yourself as a vineyard, you think of like the the mission of it to be like, well, God's expectations is that I stand for something in the world that reflects justice. That I live for if I give myself towards that which is right and good in the world. And that I conduct myself in my integrity of heart and my actions as a person. That there's righteousness there, that I'm reflecting Christ. As a matter of fact, I'm being the very image of God. I I find it absolutely mind-blowing that God would form us out of the dust, something so filthy and finite and dirty, and yet he would blow his breath into us, something so eternal and powerful and glorious. That we exist as these unique creatures in all of the universe, formed of the dust, but with the breath of God in us to reflect the image of a creator. That's who you are. And you were built for, you were made for sweet fruit. Sweet fruit. And yet sometimes, maybe most of the time, we simply think of what we have to do and we return for ourselves and how we want to live life and how we want this and all we return to God is bitter bitterness the next thing I want to talk to you about is abiding in the vine is a place of personal affection and joy listen to me Jesus says come to the vine remain in me why would you possibly remain in me so I can whip your back and get you to do my work no Jesus has done the work He wants you to live. He says, remain in me, why? So that your joy can be complete. There are such joys in Christ that are ours. If we remain, if we abide, if we dwell, if we camp out in Christ. I love how St. Augustine said it. St. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of, of Christianity, lived in the 300s. He was a pretty impressive dude. His mom was a Christian. He wasn't. He lived a wild life early on. He was known as a womanizer and a great orator. He could speak well. He was like a lawyer. He had money. He had influence and power and fame. He just quickly rose up the ranks, and he had women galore. All the ladies liked Augustine. And Augustine, when he finally came to Christ, and God was hounding him and hounding him, and suddenly his heart Gave in to the Lord. This is how he describes it. He says, Lord, you saved me from all of these lesser joys. And you saved me to the one true sovereign joy that is you. Don't spend your life on lesser joys. <laughs> Don't spend your life on, on, wasted on things that are so base and so beneath you. Listen to me. Many of the things that you find pleasure in are beneath you. You are called to righteousness. You are called to holiness. You are called to reflect the image of God. So do it. What's stopping you? Maybe you have too low expectations on yourself. God has made you this way. God has called you this way. It's never too late. It doesn't matter if you're 5 or 50. God forbid it would be too late. God calls us to Himself and He wants His joy to be in us, for our joy to be complete. And He says, Remain in my love, His affection, the affection of God. He desires, longs to pour it out on you. Some of you are way too timid in worship. I mean it. You're way too timid in worship. You're waiting to see what the band does or what other people do, whether or not you'll actually enter in and, and feel express the expressed and manifest affection of God. I'm telling you this wanna knock it off. Enough with your timidity. Enough with your fear of man, wondering what other people are thinking of you. Enough with you being too lazy or distracted. Come on. Don't return to God bitter grapes. He says, he says remain in me and remain in my love. I don't know about you, but in any relationship I have in life, if I want to remain in an affectionate loving relationship, I need to open myself up to that relationship. I need to pursue that relationship. I need to welcome that relationship in. The walls need to come down, and my heart needs to be exposed. And to some places, some people, that has not been a safe thing to do. But listen to me. When it comes to your maker and your savior and the lover of your soul, it is not only safe, it is appropriate, and it is urgent. Come on. Remain in me, Jesus says. Remain in my love. Abiding in the vine is a way of, it's a place of personal affection and joy. Let me just take a few minutes. And I want to touch on a couple of things. Because this idea of abiding is important. And abiding means remaining and staying and dwelling and camping. Camping out. Pitching your tent in Christ. I think if I could just use that metaphor a little bit, um, I want to warn you of two things. The first thing is this, wandering away. Wandering off. People that wander off aren't runaways. They're not saying, I hate you, Mom and Dad, and wrapping a pair of socks in a towel and putting it on a stick and putting it over their shoulder and marching down the street like a hobo heading for the railroad tracks. Those people are runaways. If you're a runaway, be equally warned. But listen, I'm talking about the wanderers. Those who wander away from Christ. It's like you're not doing anything particular. You're not trying to push God away. You're just not paying much attention. Some of you had children. Some of you were the children. That when your mom went to the department store, you just kind of wandered off into the sweater department section You're about this big. Nobody could see you. No one could find you. And everyone panicked. Everyone panicked. And they're announcing over there, we have an APB on a uh, six-year-old little girl. (laughs) And everyone's worried because somebody wandered off. Listen, it's dangerous for you to wander off. Let me give you an example of this. It's spring now. Picnics and parties and all kinds of fun things happening this summer. But I want to read you a scripture from... Ephesians 5, you'll know what I'm talking about. I'm addressing your relationship with alcohol. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the very most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Hear the thread work of the garden and fruitfulness. Make the most of your life. Be fruitful in your life. Bring sweet grapes of harvest, not bitter grapes because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Anytime there's a preface, don't be foolish, but do it God's way, you know there is something coming. And in this case, it says this, do not be drunk with wine. For that leads to debauchery, some some translations. That That leads to a reckless life. That leads to a rebellious life. That leads to a broken life. How many people have been touched by alcohol breaking your family or your life? How many people have been close to it? Yeah, a lot of us. Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery or a broken life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know where you come from. Some people, when I first, my, I never had a drink of alcohol until I was 22 years old. I got off the plane. I was going to Bible school in England. It's the Bible schools in England that'll really get you. <laughs> and I was just happy to be there. I'm like, Praise the Lord, I'd finished my undergraduate work and I was going to do a summer study thing in England and just immerse myself in God's word and God's people and all kinds of fun ministry stuff. And the very first week, the the other people, the other guys and gals on the course were like, hey, are you a teetotaler? I'm like, I don't like tea, what do you mean? (laughs) Oh, do you want to go to the pub with us? And I was like, I don't know. Sure. So I went. And I saw we've all seen people with very extreme views on alcohol, like it's fine to get drunk if I've had a bad day. You know what? I've had a bad day, I'm just gonna escape a little bit and ease my stress. If you had to deal with the people I dealt with, you'd drink too. That's what you say to yourself. And there are people on the other side that says, you know what? Never touch alcohol ever. If you drink alcohol, you're going to hell. Right? It, it, not that long ago, when the Christian church took a very strong uh, stance on alcohol, we call that prohibition. But the power of the destructive force of alcohol is well documented in papers and laws and in the scars and wounds on our own life. Listen to me if you've ever been drunk with wine, you are returning to the Lord, or any alcohol, bitter grapes. There is never, listen to me, ever an excuse to drink excessively. Amen. I'm sorry to say that. It doesn't mean you're going to hell. All I'm saying is that God expects righteousness and we're bringing back bitter grapes. I'm not a legalist. Some of you have had dinner with me. I'll have a glass of wine or I enjoy having a beer while I'm grilling. That is, that is not against God's word. But listen, to be excessive... With alcohol is beneath you and does not honor the one who made you and the one who made alcohol. Now you sound like an old Baptist preacher. I'm neither old nor Baptist. Well, I, did get, I got saved in a Baptist church, so deep in my heart, I'm Baptist. But listen to me. Abiding in Christ means being filled with the Spirit. I'm camping out in God, and I am loving God, and I am giving myself, I got, as a matter of fact, my heart is a song factory to God. All the songs written in the world can't even contain it. I need to write my own songs. There is a flow of joy, and there is a flow of connection, and even if that flow was broken, there is a desperation to get back in with God that I'm not gonna cheat on the edges with alcohol. The scripture already told us that God is our great joy. Abiding in him, your joy will be complete. And yet some of you think you need that drink, alcohol, to have fun. You're the church of the risen Christ. Your relationship with alcohol is a big part of your testimony in life. And I am not a teetotaler, but the scriptures tell us, do not be drunk with wine. I wonder if you've had a bad day and your first thought is, man, I need to go home and relax and have a drink. If you wouldn't be better off saying, I've had a bad day, I need to go home and get on my knees and ask the Lord to help me. I've right. lived my whole life with people that drink heavy or with people that don't drink at all. And listen to me, it is completely possible as a matter of fact, it's not even that hard to have a God-honoring relationship with alcohol. He made it. Remember the, the story of the wedding? He made the, he, it's like, we've run out. Let's have the best wine now. It wasn't, so the, it wasn't so that the people could get plastered at the wedding. The people at the wedding were like, I'm not having fun. I'm not buzzing enough. I'm not, man, I need to get, I need to get plastered today. Let's have some serious fun. It wasn't for that. Wine was a legitimate form of celebration in that setting, as it is in some of our settings. But it's never to be taken to excess. It's quiet in here now. Can I get an amen? Can I get a, I'll do my best? Your best will not be enough, which is why you need to be filled with the Spirit. Last thing is this. It's one thing to wander off. There's other ways to wander off as well, by the way. But our relationship with alcohol is a a very easy and obvious one, and I don't talk about it enough. And so don't wander off with alcohol or any other drugs for that matter. The second one is getting pushed off, right? Think of King of the Hill. When's the last time someone played King of the Hill? Has anyone ever played King of the Hill? Am I alone on this? Oh, man. Playing King of the Hill on top of a a giant snowdrift that the plows put together is one of the great joys of my childhood. It also sent me to the hospital. (laughs) Most of my great joys of my childhood did include medical care. (laughs) But lucky for me, my mom was a nurse, so she could kind of take care of that. Abiding in Christ. There are things in our life that we don't wander off and just kind of neglect or lack of attention but actually knock us off the hill. Disappointments, heartaches, turn into resentments and bitterness, which turns into unforgiveness, which turns into a toxic cesspool of stuff. And you can get knocked off the hill. And I just want to put before you today, if this is you, I want to give you a couple things. Number one, oftentimes we're disappointed or hurt in life is because we've had misguided expectations. I read to you in John 15 that Jesus calls us friends. Why? Because a friend knows the master's business. And I think many expectations that we have is, is, is really not that we would be about God's business, that somehow God would be about my business. That God is my personal go-to help desk, genie in a bottle. When I need him, I call upon him. And when things don't go right in my life, and things have not gone right in our lives, right? That somehow that creates a resentment or a bitterness or a disappointment. And we need to go back and kind of reboot that and say, wait a second. I am not here for God to be about my business. I am here to be about God's business. This has happened to me many times in my life when disappointments have knocked me for six or eight. What's the number? Knocked me out. And I've been hurt and I've been angry. And I was reminded by people that a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And so the resolution of anger for me was not to just be like, okay, fine, God, I forgive you because you didn't do what I wanted. You didn't come through for me when I defined it this way. It was for me to adjust my expectations and say, Lord, I am not here for you to be my butler. God, I am here to be about your business. And if I get wounded in the process, if I get brokenhearted in the process, my only way forward, God, is to put myself back in your hands and say, heal me, restore me. Remove the anger. Remove the resentment.'" Because I don't want to bring bitter grapes to God. <laughs> I don't. I want to remain in Him. And even if He slay me, I still want to learn to trust Him. Even if He puts me into the furnace, I want to be able to say, like our three heroes, God can save me, and even if He doesn't, I won't bow the knee to your idol. I won't cave in to doing things the world's ways. There was a man listed, and this will be my final story. Oh, no. Last week, you were very patient with me last week, by the way. I don't know what happened. I went in, like, Sermon 2.0, and I should just finish, okay? But no one left. There was a man named Shammah, 2 Samuel 23. And he was one of David's mighty men. There was a list of David's mighty men. It kind of gives their great, like these hero adventure stories in, in the, the annals of King David. And it says, says um, Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herite, when the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it, and he struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. This is my last thought. Think of David's mighty men, great mighty men, and suddenly the Philistines, who can't take him on like on their own, they band together and make a large group, and they come at David's mighty men. And they are so powerful picture some of the circumstances in your life, so powerful that they knock these guys in the face and they start fleeing, they start running, right? And suddenly they're being overwhelmed by these, these Philistines who have banded together, an overwhelming force. And there's this guy running with his friends, running for his life, suddenly he realizes, like, this is not who I am. I'm not gonna hightail and run and retreat. And he's running through a field of lentils, of all things. And he stops. He's like, you know what? I'm going to defend these lentils. And suddenly, I don't know know what he's dressed like, but he's got a shield and he's got a sword. He's like, I'm going to take my stand right here, right now in this field of lentils. And when I'm done, I'm getting a snack. And he makes a decision to say, whether I live or die in this field, I am not going to get run over by these Philistines. I'm not going to allow them to dictate the terms of my life. And so he takes his stand. It's not king of the hill, it's king of the lentil field. And he's like, come on. It says, because he stood his ground and because he defended those lentils, it says that the Lord gave him a great victory. Am I preaching to you right now? You gotta feel the lentil somewhere that needs to be defended? Are you sick of running and retreating? And you need to take a stand and say I'm gonna abide in Christ, I'm gonna remain in him and I'm not gonna continue letting life circumstances dictate who I am but I'm going to take my stand and I'm going to fight here. And maybe I'm going to die here, but I believe that the battle is the Lord's and that I will take this stand and God will give me the victory. Apply that to your life, guys. Don't wander off, but don't get pushed off either. Amen? Stand with me. I preached long enough. I think you got the message. All right, Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for this message that you gave us about abiding in you. That you don't want to push us away. You want to draw us in. And I I pray today, I pray for each of us that we would be drawn in, drawn in to abide and remain in your presence. Lord, the story of the vineyard is important to us because... Lord, we see your expectations that we stand for something in this world, that we make a difference when it comes to justice and the kingdom of God. We recognize, God, in that vineyard that your expectation was that we live a righteous life, that holiness matters to you, that we shouldn't conjure violence in our hearts, but, God, that we should be people of peace, people who walk with you. And in your presence, there's fullness of joy and all we need. And so, Lord, I pray, I pray for the wanderers, God, that they would repent and come back to you. Lord, that specifically as it comes to alcohol, God, that they would see your word and say, I'm bringing sour grapes because I'm not obeying God's word. God, I pray for those who have been victimized, been knocked off the wall, knocked off the hill, and they're just running for their lives. God, I pray through your word today that courage would awaken in them. And they would take their stand, let nothing move them, stand firm, and that, Lord, you would give them victory, whatever situation or circumstance they find themselves. We pray this in your precious name, and it is precious to us, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. It's Mother's Day next week. Bring your mama to church. We'll feed her good.